Podcast. Hold on to your butts. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Westcott demands. Now this affects Iris. Um, Iris, where are you? What you feel only matters to you. I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. Iris, I have a tip for you. Don't take drugs! Or Whatever Movies with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host, Iris. And I'm here with the full metal bitch, Wesley. Today we're talking about a movie from 2014. All you need is kill. Live, die, repeat. (laughs) Colon, edge of tomorrow. Or is it just Edge of Tomorrow? Let's not get all fancy. It is Edge of Tomorrow because the movie didn't do great. They tried to rebrand it for the home video release and tried to position it as Live, Die, Repeat slash Edge of Tomorrow. In my humble opinion, it didn't work. It says Live, Die, Repeat prominently on my Blu-ray copy. But moving forward for the potential sequel, they've got a script in place. They've been bandying it about for a number of years. They want to call it Live, Die, Repeat, and Repeat. And boy, I hope that changes. He was like, let's just Edge of tomorrow fire this title. Right? Oh, so much worse. I just watched Edge of Tomorrow two days in a row, which is very meta. And I still don't understand what Edge of Tomorrow means. I what don't does it know. Mean? I have to assume it's he gets so far through today so many times. He's always on the verge. He's right at the edge, but can never make it to tomorrow. I mean, come to think of it, he doesn't make it to tomorrow. We end on the same day. Right. By the time the credits roll, there's that's what it should have been called. Potential for tomorrow. Tomorrow adjacent. <laughs> But don't you wonder how he's able to develop so much as a super soldier when you know for a fact that his body is not developing? Like you train, right? And you get stronger and your reaction time is faster and it becomes more muscle memory. But none of that is actually happening to him physically. He's not getting stronger as a soldier. He has more knowledge. Right. Don't you wonder how he's actually performing that much better when his body is the same body that he started his first day with? Yes, this is how I live day by day. I'm sharp in mind and limited by my body's potential. (laughs) But you have the ability to change your body day by day on an incremental basis. He can't. He just has experience. It's like riding a bike. He can manipulate the super suit, which is where the majority of his abilities come from. I mean, Mm. as much as Rita is doing her planky thing, you know, how long ago was Verdun? Was she lived the same day 300 times at least, according to how many times she had to watch her buddy die? Yeah, they didn't specify the time lapse between Verdun and D-Day. But it seems like it's it's enough that it's in everyone's consciousness, but it's not too much so that the aliens have taken over the entire planet. Yep. Which seems to be happening quickly. Yeah. I was worried that you were going to say you did a double feature of Edge of Tomorrow and the Tomorrow War. Oh, man. And I was like, oh, hey, man. Edge of Tomorrow War. At Right? At first glance, you can see some influence 
or whatever, but it's such a different animal, literally. It is. And Wait, oh, you mean in terms of the alien? I cannot imagine that anybody who, you know, likes these types of movies can find fault. Maybe you think Chris Pratt is dreamier. Maybe you like the setup of Tomorrow War better or whatever, but that doesn't mean that Edge of Tomorrow should suffer as a result. I think that it's a well-crafted movie, but not everyone thought so. It was critically well-regarded. This is, in fact, the last movie, for a couple of different reasons, that I saw in theaters multiple times. What are the couple of different reasons? Uh, this is right before I met Kelly, and I saw it, I think it's three or five times in the theater. I'm not sure. So you're basically saying this was the last movie that you saw when you didn't have a life? Yes. I think Tom Cruise is talented and entertaining, and I think, above all, he is the hardest working man in show business. And he knows how to get an entertaining movie made, except Edge of Tomorrow comes right on the heels of Oblivion. Did you see Oblivion? What? Exactly. So he did a similar looking, at least by the trailer, spacey kind of movie where he's in a futuristic spacey suit and holding a spacey gun and Morgan Freeman has goggles on. It's a <laughs> post-apocalyptic kind of film that honestly I don't remember. Morgan Freeman has goggles on? <laughs> yeah. And Oblivion did pretty well. But then this looked like a cookie cutter repeat, if you will, and it so wasn't. And so not everybody turned out. So you're saying Edge of Tomorrow looks and feels exactly like the Tomorrow War and Oblivion, but is not, is completely different? Correct. It's how it was perceived. But how is it different? How is it different? It's faster, more clever, cooler, and I dare say more original. I think it fits nicely into time travel movies where it doesn't feel tired. You have these visual and auditory markers, you know, the boot heel maggot and all that stuff, you know, they didn't do it to excess. They set it up nicely and he wasn't caught in the same thing every day, even if he was caught in the same day. And it comes down to this is a creature feature, basically. And the creatures are really scary. I mean, the Tomorrow War, sure, they were all like teeth and claws and dripping jowls and all that stuff. But I've watched Edge of Tomorrow probably 15 times. I still don't know what these monsters look like. <laughs> I know to a degree what the alpha looks like. Right, because you get that roaring close-up where he's got the blue mouth thing. But even Tom Cruise, who's living the same day over and over again, said, I don't know, um, bigger, um, bluish? <laughs> bluish, that's what we know. And it looks like in a weird way, it, it almost distorts time and space. Yeah. It's like the screen wobbles. It's like heat shimmer or something when these things move. And they're so right. fast and so difficult to pin down. Like in high definition with the ability to pause and repeat, I can't figure it out. They're like terrifying koosh balls, like nuclear koosh balls. <laughs> they're just everywhere. And they are terrifying. The sound design is terrifying. And when Tom Cruise gets mauled and then melted <laughs> by the beast's blood, yep. why is it not nightmare-inducing terrifying? Like, they're scary looking, but they're not scary. And I think it's because this movie isn't about understanding. If we only understood the anatomy of our enemy, we could figure out how to destroy it, right? Like, we know from the outset that these things are indestructible. So we don't spend a lot of time analyzing their... The weakness, the chinks in their armor. <laughs> 
Yeah, their manifestation in any way, right? It's all about this mission to find the Omega. And therefore, not only are they really hard to kind of pin down visually, but it's not really important to our story. So we don't spend a lot of time, which is to, I think, the story's benefit because we don't have to have the great reveal of the final monster. How, what they look like and all the CG, whether good or bad, um, that's put into it is just not important. I completely agree. Uh, I think to answer your question about his melting face and why it wasn't more horrible, uh, this is definitely a PG-13 movie, and that is probably as graphic a death as they can get so that you understand before we, you know, maybe you're going into this cold and maybe you haven't seen the trailers and you don't know that he's repeating the same day. You have to know unequivocally he is hella dead. His face, the, all the, <laughs> like the stuff is melting out of his mouth. He's dead. Uh, so that when we jump, you're like, no, 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 he was 100% dead because we don't see a lot of blood. Rita pushes him off. Off of her and he says i think i'm hit uh, is it bad and she's like you have a hole in your chest but it's like you know a donut shaped hole in his armor and we don't see any blood or guts or anything every time rita dies she dies super posed and pretty emily blunt never dies ugly you know, she might have a little blood makeup on her face, but it's not meant to be blood and guts horrifying. She seems to not fear death when she enters the battle on the beach. Is it Normandy? Yep. And additionally, this movie was released on the 70th anniversary of the D-Day Normandy invasion. Hmm. Well, she enters that battle and fights that battle without a fear of death, knowing that she is completely, at that point, mortal. Right. Like him, she is trained to use her suit and her giant scimitar-looking sword thing. It looks like a helicopter blade or something. It is. It's literally a helicopter rotor blade, the rear rotor. However, those are generally like composite carbon deals, like ultra lightweight. They would shatter like with one swing. They are not swords. And I thought, you know, that thing is huge and it's made of solid steel and she can only wield it because she has the suit. It's a cool thought, but not really an effective weapon, practically speaking. Well, you know, I mean, who knows what time? When is this set? Maybe rotor blades are made of some really strong metal. This movie is, it was released in 2014 and it's set in the far off futuristic post-apocalyptic world of 2020. No. Yeah, literally. Look it up. When is Edge of Tomorrow set? 2020 is the answer. We had no idea. That's not true. I think we ended up worse off. <laughs> well, she's certainly battling as if, um, I was going to say there is no tomorrow. Um <laughs> But she also, as much as, yeah, she's flexing her thing, just like when he loses the power, he's still fighting all out. And yet once she loses the power, for all intents and purposes, when Cage becomes the alpha, Rita Vertasky mm -hmm. dies every time she sets foot on that beach. Yeah. And that would have, that really would have been it. And that was his fear. Yep. They're at the helicopter barn because he can't get her past that point and he doesn't want to succeed in his mission lest he do so and and she's dead. Yeah, um, kind of a tender moment. And uh, some people have responded badly to that particular scene where she insists on going and getting herself killed despite his best you know, efforts and why she's so headstrong. But you have to remember, she meets him anew every single day. So her right. resistant, damaged attitude, her, you know, she's been through this so many times and she's stared in the face. She's had to die so many times that just like him, she's kind of immune to the fear of it. But 
She doesn't know him at all. She doesn't have to let him in. This is all first date stuff. And first date, you take it easy. They seem to establish a rapport, but then you realize that it's really all on his side. It totally justifies why she's standoffish in the car. And she's like, I don't have to tell you anything. She understands intellectually, theoretically, that they have a relationship, but she doesn't feel it. And though we feel it, it's largely because we're coming at the whole relationship from Tom Cruise's point of view. Yep. And when you put it that way, at the end, when she kisses him, maybe that's a little forward. I guess you give a dude a kiss before you're about to die or whatever. But uh, (laughs) when you can tell that they so desperately want it. Right. That was (laughs) that was for his benefit and ours, I guess. (laughs) And ours. But but for her, yeah, she doesn't know this man. She knows the effort and time that he's put into getting them that far and that she probably has a certain level of appreciation for his commitment to completing the mission. As an aside, someone else mentioned in some of the ancillary stuff that I watched or listened to that Tom Cruise, his the Cage character, doesn't speak for the last six minutes of this movie. Once they get going and they're into the thing and she convinces him, it's up to her. It's her responsibility to draw the alpha away. And she gives him the grenades and the smooch. He's not trying to convince her of anything. She's making this determination and a real sacrifice on his behalf. Like she's trusting that he will take care of it. She acknowledges that she's about to die and will never thus experience the joy of the reset and the liberation on the front and that everyone's going to go across Europe without resistance. And I thought that she died nobly and stuff. And we see the alpha spot her and crush her against the hood of the car. Right. Yeah. We don't see a lot beyond that. But actually, there's a couple of frames where she that's the one messy death she has. If you don't focus on the car where her body's supposed to be, you see the splattery, gory corpse piece that it like chucks to the side. But that's the only scene I remember where there's I was like, whoa. And I only (laughs) saw it in this viewing. What were you like? Whoa. I hope and pray that some designer somewhere will turn Tom Cruise's squeal into the next Wilhelm scream. (laughs) In the water? It's kind (laughs) of muted. No. There's two times that he dies, and he makes the funniest yelpy scream ever, and I think that it needs to become the new Wilhelm scream. We'll do that. I'll add it to the next intro for the podcast. (laughs) Well, compare the two side by side here because I think people need context for the Wilhelm scream. All right, let's hear it. What the hell were you thinking? Oh my God, the one where he rolls under the... (laughs) The one where he rolls under the car is so funny. You know, I know that it's not there, but in my Uh. imagination... Uh, It's like Raiders of the Lost Ark. When he goes under the the tires, you see his little arms and legs flail up as he gets crushed. But I don't think it's all in Bill Paxton's reaction, right? As much as we all love Bill Paxton, he's kind of hammy. And I think this is where he's ideally suited, where he's sort of formalized and regimented or whatever. He's a soldier and so he's contained, but he still does the same funny accent and he's still like, you know, 
He's giving his speech and orating. Ma- Master, exactly. Master Sergeant Farrell loves to give his speeches about the fiery crucible, the great redeemer. Yeah, he's got his script. He loves to be. He's a little bit of a, sh- a showman, uh, and he obviously has the rapt attention of his J squad. Yeah. Who, though they like to defy him, also like to abide. He has such a hold over J squad that when he imposes the punishment of having to eat those cards. Nance, the lady in J Squad, eats the card long after he's gone as effect. The cage gets all in his face because that's how tough she is. So wait, let me let's go back to that for a minute because Farrell is important. Farrell watching Cage get crushed under the truck opened up this idea that when Cage dies, it's not an automatic reset. It could be a skew in the timeline to a parallel timeline because he watched him die. And took the time to say, what the hell were you thinking? Which suggests Mm. that time goes on. That they still go and get massacred the next day. And the idea that he creates multiple uh, alternate timelines. Interesting that he's not, not only is he resetting a master timeline, but he's creating a new one. I was also going to ask about the actual reset time. We always reappear when he's sleeping on the rucksacks or whatever after he was tased. But why then? Are the mimics on some kind of alien calendar where that's the beginning of their alien day? <laughs> and so that's the time that they reset to? I, I don't know. I can just I can pull it out my ass or I can try to. But also, <laughs> apparently, it's not fixed. That is our visual audiovisual reference cues, right? The maggot and the boot heel and all that stuff. And we get all that stuff. And that reminds us, okay, we're resetting. We become very comfortable with that so that all she has to do is shoot him in the head and we understand exactly what's happening. But it's also not fixed because when he gets soaked in the Omega blood, I don't know how that's any different. He becomes the alpha again. And when it resets, it's a different time of day, as far as I understand it. It's also a different place. Why would he suddenly reset on the helicopter to land in Trafalgar and speak to that lady as he did the first time? Oh, right. It's very convenient, movie. Doug Lyman, come on. Obviously, shares similarities with Groundhog Day, but it's just an element of time travel movies, a style of them that it seems closest to. Is it coincidence? Is it just a contrivance? Or are they actually paying homage? Do we understand that it's supposed to be Groundhog Day, i.e. the main female protagonist is also Rita? And that while his name isn't Phil, as it was in Groundhog Day, it is Bill, Bill Cage, Bill Murray? I mean, those two similarities, I get maybe that's reaching, but that's also pretty convenient where you'd be thinking They'd be trying to steer as far clear of Groundhog Day associations as possible. But Rita and Bill's pretty strong case. I wouldn't put it past writer Christopher McQuarrie. Like, he's a movie lover and he's a fantastic writer and why not? But that's kind of where this the comparisons really end. Like, there's a, a high-level concept that they share and maybe some names and stuff like that. But there's, it's not like it's at, we're at risk here of plagiarizing the story. Yep, I think they pretty clearly deviate from... Groundhog Day pretty early on. And maybe for these movies, you're sort of on board or not. I haven't really found people who hate this movie, but I guess maybe those people are out there. So Brian loves this movie. And I think it's the movie that he watches every time he takes a flight. And some movies are really great for that. I don't remember loving this movie. I remember it being fine. But I think that if you watch it really passively, it's very possible for this to simply pass you by which may have something to do with its lack of ultimate success at the box office. 
now that I've seen it a couple times, I got pretty invested in it and understand understanding it and thinking about it. And I guess it, any time travel movie is going to have to maybe cause the average moviegoer to think a little bit more than they might want to. I think that's always a consideration. But I think the strength of Edge of Tomorrow is that it works as both a watcher and a washer. I think it's dynamic and exciting. I think the creatures are cool. I think the action is pretty well interspersed with the very necessary exposition and the setup and the holograms and the great presentation. Really great. But at the same time, if you're tracking it and really paying close attention, I think it's rewarding even upon rewatch. I'm trying to suggest that the movie has a lot more going for it than the chemistry and the ability of Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt, but that's not in short supply either. I think both of them sell this movie really well. I really like Emily Blunt in this role. Emily Blunt's Rita Vertasky character is kind of a no-nonsense, hard-ass, on a mission. And I kind of like that she doesn't have some of this weird charm that she tries to infuse in other characters, <laughs> like her plucky Jungle Cruise character, where she's trying to simultaneously be like bucking the system, but also kind of charming in her own way. Are you suggesting ineffectually? Yeah. You're crazy. I think Emily Blunt is really great in this role. I think they've got really great chemistry. I mean, I, I get that she's pretty and stuff, but it's weird that these directors impose these romantic relationships on her characters. Like, they, she doesn't have any business kissing Cage. She doesn't have any business kissing The Rock. Like, why don't you just let, like, just let her be badass? Well, look, she is not sexualized, this character, in this movie, because there were, in earlier drafts of the script, there was the obligatory Ripley underpants scene where she was running around, and they nixed that idea. Uh, she's very focused on the war and her ability to win the war. It's almost as though she is a desexualized character, except she totally is when she does that sexy push-up thing. And they played that shot like three times. But is it really a sexy push-up or is it just a push-up that's made sexy by virtue of being Emily Blunt? Right. Am I projecting on it? Don't know. Don't care. <laughs> uh, I think that she has the ability to be perceived as, you know, the hard-nosed, hard-looking bitchy character that the most of the men in this movie regard her to be. But at the same time, she has the soul of a person who watched her friend and a potential boyfriend or whatever die 300 times over, you know? Yeah. He's kind of searching her eyes for this information that he needs to know since he's now got the, the torch has been passed or whatever, and she doesn't have a whole lot of ability to help him, but she's got the, uh, the mournful, soulful eyes. Well, she's convinced him that because of her experience that he needs to get her to the Omega, and then he realizes after who knows how many days, that he actually doesn't need her. He gets really far without her. Remember that day he goes to visit and then decides not to introduce himself, decides not to disclose to her the information that he knows, and he goes on the mission by himself? He gets yeah. really far. That's where he, so far without her that he gets hurt and almost loses the power and has to drown himself. But yes, oh, right. I, I understand what you're saying. He goes to the dam, unfortunately, where the where the Omega had tricked him into thinking that it was. Right. Interesting and enough for repeat watching. Like, all of that was an illusion. The visions that projected to him were a total illusion, just like at Verdun. And then he, once he sticks the thing in his 
leg or whatever. It's like the synthetic alpha jibe thing. Then he gets a real vision before it gets a chance to zero on him so they know enough to go to Paris before it can peace out. Why does the Omega choose the most recognizable landmark on the planet to hide under? Because, man, production value. That's where the Holy (laughs) Grail is. That's where the Omega is. Spoiler. Because it's the most recognizable place on Earth, like it serves a purpose for where people can see it and be like, that's where it like and know instantly. I guess it serves that purpose. But seriously, I've never been there. You never been to Louvre? I've never been to Paris. You should get on that. Okay. Honeymoon. As Doug Lyman says, the most beautiful city in the world. Having shot one of the Bourne movies the or something The City of Lights. There. So does Tom Cruise... Is Tom Cruise just Tom Cruise in this movie, or do you feel like he does something different? He, mo- he rides the motorcycle sans helmet, does a lot of running, uh, smiling. <laughs> Almost without exception, Doug Lyman says that he did his own stunts, which for this movie is no small feat. Is that 100% accurate? I don't know. But there was a lot of physicality in this movie, and I think he did all that really well. And at the same time, his character goes through an easily identifiable arc that I think was really effective when he goes all rogue and hard nose. And when he's like, where's your helmet? And he's like, I never wear one. It's a distraction. Get me another battery and some more ammo. Right. And he's like the scary Tom Cruise. All that's really effective. You're talking about Tom Cruise's range. What I noticed in this movie upon watching it the first time is the cage that's brought in for the PR to try to sell the general's war is very much the Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise. You know, where he's like all smiley and teeth. And I think that that persona (laughs) is supposed to be like actual Tom Cruise. You know, he's the smiley guy and the laughing with you. And how about a bestseller and the PR guy? And then we see him change. And he really does sell this change where he becomes hardened. He becomes weary, you know, jaded, disheartened and stuff. And then... uh, Which are interesting adjectives because what's happening is the man is developing a sense of humanity. (laughs) Well, by the end, he is fully acknowledging that most, if not all, of J-Squad is going to die for him to achieve his objective, the two of them. He's like, (laughs) what do we do? (laughs) What do we do if an alpha comes at us? And he's like, take one for the team. I mean, a broader, more philosophical sense of humanity. Right. He wasn't even willing to get on the beach, not even knowing. At that point, we had no idea that the, the he said there's going to be minimal activity on the beach. That's why you're going to be there surrounded by trained soldiers. They didn't know it was going to be basically an ambush where the mimics had them set up for Operation Downfall or whatever to be their endgame. But even still, by the end, he acknowledged that he had to sacrifice potentially himself and a number of other people to get this thing taken care of. So basically, by the end of this movie, J-Squad is never going to know who he is. He sees them with a knowing glance, but they're never going to know. Rita Vertasky has no idea. He's going to be like, let me tell you a story. And she's going to be like, that's great. Thanks, Cage. And go back to planking. (laughs) Tom Cruise is, do I say he's a good actor or do I say he's a not bad actor? He's been criticized for always being some version of Tom Cruise. But is that so bad? He's kind of the opposite of Leonardo DiCaprio. The difference is that Leonardo DiCaprio is just Leonardo DiCaprio in all of these different movies, but he chooses movies like he has range. Whereas I feel like Tom Cruise, at least now in his in his maturity, in his older age, understands the type of movies that he's appropriate for. 
Yeah, he's not hunting for the Oscar anymore. Maybe Leo's not either, having gotten it. But Tom Cruise knows how to spot a blockbuster and how to execute it. And he knows his place in it. Right. And I think can adjust accordingly. And I feel like this movie is just the perfect vehicle for Tom Cruise. He's totally believable as this slick salesman character who gains some humanity. I mean, you, you totally believe him. Tom Cruise is the Vin Diesel of Tom Cruise movies. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know. Vin Diesel also knows his place. Getting a little bit long in the tooth, but he's firmly ensconced in these Fast and Furious movies until the end of time. I don't know what that dude's going to do after Fast and Furious 10, which they claim is going to be the last one. Iron Giant 2. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But we'll see. What's Vin Diesel going to do after Fast and Furious 10? Don't know. What's Tom Cruise going to do after Mission Impossible? I think he's 60 years old now. That said, yeah. uh, Emily Blunt says she had a great time making this movie. She loves these dudes. She says she was asked on a continual basis for her input, for her vision, and she felt like really part of the family and would love to do part two. But uh, Emily Blunt has come a long way in the short seven years since Edge of Tomorrow, and it's really hard to get her freed up at the sa exact same time. So live, die, repeat, Edge of Tomorrow. Nope. Edge of Tomorrow, Always and Forever. Sorry, Doug Lyman. I didn't know this, that he hated that title. I don't even think it's a great title, but I am protective over this movie. Uh, we didn't even talk about the pacing and the editing and the turn that this this film takes once we kind of really gain some momentum and all of the tedious exposition work is behind us. There's so much to talk about and dissect, but I think we need to wrap it up. What is your ultimate rating of Edge of Tomorrow. 100% totally. We were talking about it last wow. night. Wow. Kelly was like, I was like, you want to watch Edge of Tomorrow? And she's like, why? You've seen that movie so many times. You're totally going to give it a totally. And I was like, yeah. It's a fast moving vehicle that makes deft turns and, uh, and handles itself admirably. My reaction to this movie is very similar to Dr. Carter's. You know, when the, the second time when he goes in, he's like, yeah, you got two fingers behind your back. Yeah. And Dr. <laughs> Carter is like, like yeah, and he's like processing it. And you could tell his mind is totally blown. And he's like, he's like, give me two seconds for me to come up to speed, like weeks and weeks of knowledge that you have or whatever. And then he's like, OK, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you could tell that like his mind is just going crazy trying to catch up. And then once he does, he can start talking again. Like that's kind of that was kind of me watching this movie. Like there's a bit of a learning curve. And then at some point it's like I got it. And that coincided so well with the filmmakers moving the story forward. They are a step ahead of us. And then at the end, they like do this switcheroo where they we're following the story in real time. Yeah, like like cages. Exactly. Uh, it's really touching to see you get excited about a film and not be all nopey-mopey. Just go with it. Go with Tom Cruise to the edge of tomorrow. So that's our review on Edge of Tomorrow. You got a totally from Wes and a good from Iris. Let us know what you think. 818-835-0473 or whatevermovies at gmail.com. Edge of Tomorrow available on VOD. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. 
Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electric Cast production. Electric Cast. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for season two of the Wanna Bet podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that season two starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.